Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things. Friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. A great healing story. Surely it's as simple as that. It's just a great healing story, right? Way to go. We high-five Jesus and everybody goes to lunch. Way to go, Jesus. The problem is that this story is placed in a particular context. In a particular context here in, in chapter 13, and we will get shortly to the verses that come after, which make this a whole lot more than just your simple run-of-the-mill healing story. And all of these verses are found within this larger narrative of this journey to Jerusalem or a journey to the cross. So Jesus, we've already heard this, he's set its face. He is headed to the cross. I mean, there's going to be some trouble ahead. And Jesus knows it. Jesus knows it. And part of the reason Jesus knows that he's going to experience some trouble is because, seatbelts everybody, he is challenging the religion of his day. It is still very dangerous to challenge the religion of the day, even if you're doing it alongside Jesus. In fact, in fact, let me, let me go ahead and say this. <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think today it's very important that we recognize that there have been times when we have, perhaps with clear hearts and the best of intentions, we have become religious and have taken certain postures and articulated certain beliefs and allowed those things to be fortified by the sense of religiosity only to find upon further review that actually we have wandered so far away from Jesus that Jesus himself wouldn't recognize this as Christianity. Perhaps this will kind of give us a lens through which we can read and receive these verses. Let me ask you a question. Um, who would you like to exclude from this group? Now I want you, I want you to think, I want you to think, and you, I don't want you to raise your hand and point. Please don't point. <laughs> I want you to think. I'm assuming you love your church. I'm assuming you love your church. That being the case, can you think of a person or a group of people that you would like to protect us from? I mean, how would you draw the lines that make the in-group and the out-group? I, I, honestly, I think if, we, if you were to discover that we as a church have this strange way of drawing lines to create an in-group and an out-group, what you would find is we are chronically normal. <laughs> and, and for sure, we have in our history had chapters when, when we have done that, and it's been painful, especially painful for the folks who find themselves outside of the lines that we have drawn. Jesus was challenging the way that the religious institution had drawn their lines. And every time he did, <laughs> they sharpened their attacks. We have, to, we have to struggle today with the lines that are drawn. And we have to ask ourselves a very difficult question. 
Which of these lines did Jesus put here? And which of these lines have we put here? And then we have to have just enough courage and integrity to do something about the lines that we've drawn that Christ has not drawn. We meet on Wednesday nights right over here. We only have one more week. Uh, Jason mentioned it earlier, um, unclean. The book study happens right here, and, and Ron Wright and Paul Jones and I sit on stools up front, and it feels like, if you've been reading this book along with us, it, it, I experienced this book a little bit like I think I would a wrestling match. There's just so much wrestling that happens with the content of this book, because here's what we're asking. We're asking this question throughout the pages of this book, and we are helped along by a man who is trained in uh, the, the field of theology, but he is a, a psychotherapist as well, so in the field of psychology too, He's asking us this question, how have we formed our in-groups and out-groups? And to what extent, when we form our in-groups and out-groups, to what extent are we looking and smelling more like the Pharisees as opposed to looking and smelling more like Jesus? How, how are we constructed and who's constructing us? Have you ever seen someone excluded I tell you where I see it. I see it in young people. I see children doing it all the time. I've, I've, seen, uh, I've seen young people do it. And, and young people, when they exclude, and perhaps you've seen it too, young people have this way, I, I believe the Greek term is cooties, right? Have, have this way of, of labeling someone as having uh, cooties or something along, I don't know what the 2016 version of that is, but it's something like cooties, right? Kids have a way of, of labeling folks as such, and then sometimes their labels carry so much weight that the person who now has received this label of the cootie bearer, sometimes that person can start to live into that label. It's powerful. One of the great literary works of our time, as you know, is Diary of the Wimpy Kid. And I want to play a quick video here that has to do, we've played it once before, that has to do, yes, I can already hear you say it, it has to do with the cheese touch. So Chris, are we ready for that? Nope, yep, okay. Nope, not just yet, nope, nope. What? The cheese touch. One day, a kid named Darren Walsh made the biggest mistake of his life. Darren touched the cheese! Darren had the cheese touch. It was worse than nuclear cooties. The only way to get rid of the cheese touch was by passing it on to someone else. Yeah, we should go get one for you, too. Yeah. Yeah, I love the color. And so began the cheese touch frenzy. Friend turning on friend. Until a German exchange student named Dieter Mueller took it away that fateful day. Dieter has a cheese touch. A cheese touch? Wie bitte? Verstehe nicht. Warum rennt ihr? Was soll das heißen, der cheese touch? He moved back to Düsseldorf and took the cheese touch with him. And so the cheese sits, patiently waiting for its next victim. Wow. Wow. This is a terrible place. <laughs> you can go ahead and move us back, Chris. So this book that we've been reading, this unclean book, this, this, this book has, um, 
a chapter that's called Monsters and Scapegoats. And Monsters and Scapegoats uh, kind of goes something like this. When you as a group decide that someone has the cheese touch, you have made a monster out of somebody. You've made a monster out of somebody. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Sometimes monsters live into and up to their labels. Sometimes monsters live into and up to their labels. The group has decided this person is outside the boundaries. In fact, this person is so far outside the boundaries, we need to do whatever we can to keep those people from coming in. Now, who is that person again I asked you about earlier? Remember, I asked you, who do you want to keep out? You know, for the good of the group, right? Obviously, right? For the good of the group, who would you like to exclude? In other words, in other words, who have you labeled as the monster? Who is serving for you right now as that scapegoat? It's a little bit too personal to talk to each of us, so let me talk to all of us, okay? And by saying all of us, I don't just mean all of us in this room, I mean all of us as the church with a capital C. Who are our monsters? Man, I am convinced of this. Man, if you're a note taker, this might be the only time today. (laughs) Your list of monsters better match Christ's. Because if it doesn't, you're probably wrong. You saw the slide, it flashed up and and some of you, how many of you have seen this Netflix uh, series, The Making of a Murderer, Stephen Avery? That's kind of the question that's being asked here, too. Have we done something as a culture? We've wrongly accused this man. Did we make him into a monster? Did we make him into a murderer by the way that we just assumed his guilt, only to, be, only to find out that he was actually innocent of the crime of rape? But through that entire process where we accused him and accused him and accused him, did we make him into a monster? Can you, by labeling someone as a monster, can you make a monster? Scripture seems to say yes. And here's the hardest part. Scripture, and now I mean Jesus, seems to say sometimes religious organizations that are supposed to bear the marks of God, sometimes religious organizations that are thought to be on God's side, sometimes those same religious organizations, and that would include us, have the capacity to label folks as monsters and make them into monsters. Who are our monsters? Who is your monster? Who's my monster? Who are our monsters as a local church, but who are our monsters as a church with a capital C? How has the church with a capital C organized itself to protect itself? And what does Jesus think? If, I'm assuming that still matters. What does Jesus think about our monster list?
Take a look at this next slide. Go ahead, Chris. So here it is. Here's this sort of run-of-the-mill uh, healing story, except actually, upon further review, maybe it's not such a run-of-the-mill story. Jesus was in a synagogue, participating in the religious organization, right? He was in the synagogue, in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. Okay, this is a monster. And even in our unclean book, we, we have heard this before, that, that folks who are um, abnormally formed, let's say, and maybe uh, desperately injured, folks who, who bear the marks of death, give the other folks in the room, or have the capacity to give the other folks in the room, death anxiety. Remember, we talked about death anxiety. We do not want to be reminded of our mortality. We don't want to be reminded that we are temporary, that we are finite. And so we have this awful way of pushing all evidence of our finiteness, pushing all evidence of our temporary nature. We have this funny way of pushing it all so far away from us that we don't have to think about it, we don't have to see it, we don't have to interact with it, we don't have to experience it at all. Turns out that's not new. We've always done something like that. And this woman, being as she was, a woman, and then a disabled woman, would have been relegated to the back rows of the synagogue. And would have been something of a monster and off limits. For a variety of reasons, off limits. So much so, that Jesus, if he was really interested in keeping his sense of cleanness before all of the folks in the room that day, so much so that Jesus would have known better and he would have avoided touching her. He would have avoided speaking to her. He would have avoided referring to her and drawing attention to her. But note this, church. She does not come looking for healing. He goes looking for her. Oh, she is bent double, unable to stand up straight. Sort of by definition, then, she can't look too far in the future. She seems to be resigned to her lot in life. She seems to be resigned to that particular spot and that particular pew at the back of the church. She seems to kind of just go along and get along. And then Jesus. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, woman, Jesus already crossing boundaries. Everybody with me so far? Already Jesus is in trouble with certain people. Woman, you are set free from your ailment. Now, hear this. The book of Luke seems to be very clear here. This is not just a physical ailment. This was not just osteoporosis. You like that? Yeah, been doing some reading. <laughs> There's something more going on here. Luke tells us there's a spirit that's contributed to the burden on her back that bends her double. There's a spirit. Now, we've used that language around here before. We've been a couple times now through um, the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. And we talked about, if you'll remember, we talked about churches having spirits or angels. A gathered up spirit, 
So if you want to tell me uh, about the, the nature, the makeup of a church, if you want to tell me what it's like to go to a particular church, if you want to tell me just what the essence of a church is, you'll tell me something about the gathered up spirit or as Revelation would call it, the angel of a church. I don't know a whole lot about this particular synagogue, but the angel of this synagogue is such that it takes hurting isolated women and bends them double. It adds to their burden. It makes monsters. The synagogue makes monsters. Here's what's worse. Seems to be for religious reasons. I need you to, I need you to soak in that for a second. According to the book of Luke, this particular synagogue seems to make monsters for religious reasons. Let me go back to the question I asked you at the beginning. Who would you like to protect us from? Who would you like to exclude? And do you have religious reasons for it? Well, absolutely I have religious reasons for it. Yeah, but do you have Christian reasons? He didn't just pronounce, do you see this? He didn't just pronounce it from across the room. He walks over, again, crossing every boundary he can find. <laughs> crossing every boundary he could find. He laid his hands on her, and immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. There's another point in Scripture where the disciples are, are, are told something like this. I'm giving you the power to bind and to loose, to bind and to loose. And you have this authority, disciples. What you say should be bound here will be bound forever. What you think and what you say should be loosed here will be loosed forever. It's really interesting because all of those words are all through this. There's binding and loosing everywhere. This one was bound, her physical condition her emotional, her cultural, her societal condition, she was bound. What Jesus does is he looses the bondage. Oh man, here it is again now. You seem to have it in all the gospels, you seem to have a little tournament, a test of wills between the religious establishment which says, pounding their fists on the pulpit, we represent God, and then you have Jesus, who at times says, hang on a second, I'm gonna pound on my own pulpit, and I'm gonna say I represent God, and then we have to choose. Which one is actually representing God? The answer is always Jesus. <laughs> it's always Jesus. She stood up straight and broke a few more rules, because then she got loud. Oh, this is embarrassing. <laughs> Not only has this guest speaker come in and called attention to this monster right here, messing up the good thing that we got going in our little synagogue, but then he refers to her as woman. Men don't talk to women. And then he touches her. Who does, this, who does this Jesus think he is? Oh, it gets better or worse. Now, now I want to give us a little, a little grace to this leader of the synagogue, okay? Now, here are the verses that, have, that, are, that are really going to get to me. Um, 
who's a leader of the synagogue. Let's, let's call this person the chairman of that particular synagogue board, right? And let's say, let's say, and I'm adding all of this myself, let's say that this is a, a, a young aspiring leader, wants to be a leader in the synagogue, and he's replacing, let's say, someone who has been there for decades and decades and really had things spinning like a top. I mean, everything was just perfectly structured, perfectly organized, and this young guy comes in now, and it's his responsibility to carry on this church's structure and legacy carry it on, right? So he feels the pressure. Jesus comes in as a guest speaker and he messes up everything. So this guy's got to do something. He's got to do something. Because if this Jesus is going to be allowed to rewrite everything, it's going to rewrite everything. And people won't know where to sit. People won't know where to sit. They won't know how to be. They won't know what to do. This is a true story, y'all. This is a true story. This precious little old lady that used to go to church here, she no longer does. That sounded bad. She, she passed away. All right, here's why, that's why she doesn't go here anymore. That didn't sound good either, did it? Anyway, she got into the sanctuary early, early, early. In fact, uh, just after the music rehearsal was over and there was really nobody else in here, and she was going to go head over to her seat, there was a visitor in her seat. She made it move. She made him move because the establishment knows where everybody's supposed to sit. And you're not us. You can't sit here. The leader of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath And he said this to the crowd, which is sort of a a veiled shot at the woman. Watch this. There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. Look, you've been hurt for 18 years. Would one more day kill you? Because we have a structure to hold together. We have definitions of right and wrong that we have to Uphold and reinforce and dig in and draw lines. What are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing? What are you doing, woman? What will they say about our synagogue? What will they say about our synagogue? If at our synagogue, and this is terrible, if, if a woman can come and be seen and noticed, and if she can be loud, folks are going to talk. And here's the worst part. This rabbi violated the Ten Commandments, violated the Decalogue in doing what he did on the Sabbath. There was. There was this line in the law that went something like this. Healings, great and all, but chronic sorts of issues can probably wait till Monday. Only catastrophic issues should be dealt with on the Sabbath, only. Chronic issues, and if you've been sick or hurt for 18 years, that qualifies as a chronic issue. They really thought she should have waited till Monday, but Jesus. But Jesus. Now, here's the thing. And we have said this before, and I don't want this to weird you out, but you need to know what you have in Scripture. And forgive me. 
another plug. We don't all, all of us Christians, we don't all read scripture the same way. We read it a particular way. And in this particular way that we read it, we recognize and are honest about the fact that there are differing opinions within Scripture. There's an argument within Scripture. There are multiple arguments within Scripture, and we believe there's something good and godly about the tension. <laughs> we have to wrestle with it. We have to sort through it. You're going to hear that in Jason's disciple classes. Books of the Bible don't necessarily agree. For example, you have in Exodus 20 a listing of the Ten Commandments. And after this one on Sabbath, you have a little bit of commentary that goes like this. You are to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. For God, for God did all of God's creative work on six days, then he rested. So Sabbath is supposed to be a celebration of doing nothing really slowly. Stop. 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 That's what you're supposed to do on the Sabbath. Stop. Stop. In 1985, Oklahoma still had blue laws. <laughs> and believe it or not, you probably knew this, these blue laws were such that you couldn't buy any liquor, all right? That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? But you also couldn't wrestle or box. There's a lot of things that you couldn't do because of these blue laws. Because, because, I think they were reading the Exodus 20 version of the Decalogue. In the Exodus 20 version, if you don't read any other part, but you get this impression that Christians are supposed to sit really still and think about God on the Sabbath. Sorry, pastors, I know it's kind of a work day, but you're supposed to sit still and do nothing on the Sabbath. Man, this, this is, I, I, I think this is a, a fairly common disease amongst Christians and religious people. Christians, and not, not everybody, they're some of the most gracious people I've ever seen sitting in this room, and I am thrilled to know you, honored to know you, and I'm better because of it. But there are some people, probably out there, <laughs> religious people who only hear this when they hear the law of God, don't and stop, period. But here's the deal. Very rarely is it don't and stop, period. If it's don't and stop, it's don't and stop so that you can do this. Soapbox warning. Church of the Nazarene has for a long time said alcohol is dangerous and we should avoid it. But it's not because we believe we're better than our Methodist or Episcopalian or Catholic brothers and sisters who drink. It's not a measure of personal piety. It's because we have chosen to align ourselves with the exploited where alcohol is concerned. And so, as a matter of conscience, we say, we're not going to participate in an industry that exploits. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. I do think you can enjoy a good glass of wine and go to heaven, and all God's people said. Because it is not a measure of your personal piety. It is a societal stance that we decided to make when we got organized. But you know what? You can be Christian if you don't believe it. But what has happened is people have subtracted the story from that line of thinking about alcohol. They've subtracted the whole story and they hold it up now as, nope, Nazarenes don't drink. Oh, you drank. You can't be a Nazarene. I bet you're not even Christian. 
laws separated from their stories become legalism. This was a law separated from its story. <laughs> Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's not just don't and stop. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But this is what you get in the book of Deuteronomy after that very same commandment. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This is not an admonition to stop. It is an admonition to participate with God in the movement of liberation and help and rescue and restoration. You're not Christian somehow just because you stop doing something. You're a Christian when you stop doing this thing so you can do a God thing. Starting to sweat, okay. But the Lord drew a bead on this synagogue leader, and you have to know, it was on the entire establishment. He said, you're a bunch of hypocrites. This woman was bound. She was bound. I loosed her chains. I loosed her from this particular Malady. Don't you do the same thing? And here's this verb again. Do not each of you on the Sabbath loose your ox or donkey from the manger because they're bound to the manger in order to give that animal something to drink. So you'll do that on the Sabbath. You'll loosen the bonds and let your ox or your donkey get something to drink but you just can't quite wrap your mind or heart around this woman who's been in such bondage for 18 years. Do you really prefer the rules to the people? Hey church, do you really prefer the rules over the people? John, do you realize which route? Yes, I do. Yeah, but there are some rules, John. I know, there's, there's rough ones, aren't there? There's some tough ones. There's some tough ones. Pretty sure God can handle that without your help. You're to be spent you're to be spent in this movement of liberation. You are not God's policeman, I promise. I'm not either. When do you most glorify God? When you are policing the boundaries? or embracing the center. And ought not this woman, who now is not just a woman, but look, look what he does for her. Look what he gives to her. Look at the dignity and the status 
and the relabeling that happens here. Look what he does for her. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, there's evil here, there's evil in the midst. No, are you saying, John, that she was demon-possessed? No, I'm saying that the church might have been. <laughs> Churches that make monsters have an evil problem. I would call it a demonic problem. I'm going to say that again in case you're writing it down. Churches that make monsters have an evil problem. Isn't it just right that she would be set free from bondage on the Sabbath? The day that we remember the God who liberates the day that we remember the God who comes alongside and fights for and helps and rescues and restores, doesn't it just make sense that it's better for her to be healed on this day than tomorrow? It makes more sense on this day than it does tomorrow if you think about it. <laughs> this woman was bent double by shame. Bent double by shame. Just Ruined by shame. Shame. You know, I think I'm okay with guilt at some level, right? I think there are times when the Holy Spirit can say, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have said that. You should do this. You should go and say that. The Holy Spirit has this way of helping folks who are listening to feel some sense of guilt, but it's not shame. I say to you every week, God's mind about you is made up. Here's the hard part. Every week, that synagogue reinforced this message to her. God's mind about you is made up. Stay back there. And the shame bent her double. Jesus liberates her. And not just from the bout with osteoporosis, Jesus liberates her from her societal place and label. Jesus liberates her from this buckling, crippling sense of shame and puts it where it's supposed to go on the religious people. When he said this, all of his opponents were put to shame. And the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. Now, Right after this, you'll have a couple of verses that go something like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a little bitty mustard seed. Kind of a weedy sort of a, it's a weed, right? It's a little bit of a, a, little bit of a weed, and it's a real nuisance to folks who are trying to grow crops. Jesus says this, this little tiny mustard seed grows into this giant tree so big that all of the birds of the air come and sit and rest in its branches. Now, the, the local farmers will be going, that is the biggest nightmare ever, <laughs> That a little bit can become something this big. But here's what Jesus is saying. This little something here that we're doing, it's called liberation and welcome and hospitality. It may seem small to you, but God can use it to do something catastrophically good. Then he says, yeah, it's a little bit like this woman who has huge, huge, huge batch of dough. Enough for just scads of people and she takes this little bit of yeast and sure enough as she works it 
It works through the entire batch of dough, and lots of people get fed. In other words, a little bit of liberation does a lot more than a lot of legalism. That was good. That needs to be a bumper sticker, right? A little bit of liberation does a lot more than a lot of legalism. Well, who's going to mind the boundaries? Who's going to be the policeman? I, I am. Look, we can vote if you want, but I'm willing to leave that up to Jesus. And another part of this book, Unclean, and we're about done. The author has so thoroughly unmasked us. <laughs> you feel so found out as you read through this book, Unclean. You do get to a point where you ask, what can we do about this? If, if I'm the monster maker, if I'm a part of a congregation that makes monsters, if, if I am doing all of this, but I'm not doing it intentionally, I've just kind of been, been, I don't know, shaped by my society to exclude certain folks and certain types. What do I, what do I need to do? This book, it just felt painfully honest. In this book, Richard Beck says, you probably need to assume that you're guilty of this so that we can all get together, all assume that we're guilty of this, and be intentional about not being these people. Does that hurt your feelings? It did mine at first. <laughs> I read that the first time and I thought, I am a much better person than this guy thinks I am. The more I read it, the more honest I got. I probably have answers to that question too. Who would you like to exclude? I know I do. I know who they are. I know what the, I know what the labels are. I know that I have made monsters out of certain people. I know I have. There's a sense in which I'm, I'm that synagogue leader. <laughs> we say this a lot around here. You look at yourself and you look at Jesus and you confess the difference in the hopes of closing the gap. But how many of us in the room today look at ourselves and look at the synagogue leader and we go, oh, wow, that smells like me, that looks like me, that sounds like me? We probably need to confess not so much the difference between us and the synagogue leader. We need to confess the similarities, don't we? I do. I do. Would you confess along with me today? Can we do it together? Together as a local worshiping community, can we lock arms and say, we need one another to be aware of, to be cognizant of all the different ways that we have excluded certain types of folks. And when I'm unaware of it, help me to know. Help me to know it. 
And then, this God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, whose mind about us is already made up, this God, and sometimes I'm still shocked to find this out, this God still calls us and uses us, treats us with regard, welcomes us, incorporates us, and we celebrate that fact every week right here. If you're helping us, would you come and help us to get organized? Heavenly Father, bless these elements, and may we see in the bread and the cup another extension of grace. May we see you extending grace to us again, again, <laughs> knowing what you know about us, knowing more about us than we know about ourselves, knowing that we have the tendency to exclude, sometimes consciously and sometimes subconsciously. God, help us to know that we're found out. At the same time, God, may we recognize that in our found outness, you still reach for us. You still come for us. You still call us and include us. In a moment, I'm, I'm gonna ask you to stand and exit your pews to the left and then to come forward and you'll walk toward someone holding a, a plate of bread. Come with your hands cupped to receive this gift of grace. As you approach, you'll hear that person snap off a piece of bread and then take that bread and place it into your hands and say this, this is the body of Christ broken for you. There it is, grace extended to you. Don't eat the bread just yet, though. Take that piece of bread and dip it into the cup. The person standing right next door will be, hand, will be holding a cup. Dip it into that cup. When you do, that person will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. There it is again. Grace extended to you. Though God knows everything there is to know about you, grace is extended to you again. And then take and eat. Then take and eat. And then find a place to pray. And, and pray this. God, is it me? God, who are the monsters on my list and who are the monsters on your list? And can we see if we can harmonize those lists? Find a place to pray. Now, as you circle back around, you may want to stop at these side padded altars. Those are for prayers for healing. And someone will meet you there to pray a very powerful prayer for healing, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, relational, pray all kinds of prayers for healing. And maybe you want to stop here at one of these mourner's benches to pray a different kind of prayer. All kinds of prayers are welcome here. You will find that someone will at some point touch you and say, you are not alone. You are not alone as you pray this prayer. There is also right up here this bowl of water meant to help you remember that you're amongst the baptized, a part of the body of Christ, the body of Christ, the tangible, touchable expression 
of Christ in the world. Don't be the synagogue leader. Remember that you're meant to be more like Jesus than a synagogue leader. And maybe dipping your fingers into this water will help you to remember who you are. If you can't come to us, Jason and Katie will come to you, hear this ritual, and then we will partake. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and gave us to his disciples saying, this is my body, broken for you. Every time, every week at church when you eat this bread, remember me and the grace extended to you. And after supper, he took the cup. He held it up before them and he said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink it, remember, remember me and remember the grace extended to you. We do this every week in the hopes that someday we might understand ourselves as the bread of God taken, blessed, broken, and given to the world. all across the sanctuary, I want to invite you. All who are aware of their need for grace, all are invited to stand, to exit your pew to the left, to come forward to receive the gifts of God for the people of God.
Heavenly Father, we, uh, we start with the prayer of confession and confess, Lord, that perhaps all of us have taken part in the process of making a monster. In fact, church, would you pray along with me that anyone in the room who has ever, even for a moment, felt like a monster would receive this healing touch of God, this healing touch that causes folks to stand straight up. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's fear that causes us to exclude and push out. Sometimes, Lord, we are trying to just be faithful <laughs> and protect you. confess, Lord, that we seem to be more confident in the touch of impurity than your overpowering touch of purity. God, would you help us to see the powerful touch of God? Would you help us to see in passages like we've read today how things change? Jesus' hands get involved and 
help us to see how our hands might be Christ's hands. Now hear us today, Lord, as we pray prayers of petition. Please join me as we do move towards moments of prayer of intercession. We have some folks that would love for you as a congregation to gather around all of us and some of our loved ones who need specific healing touches from the Lord this morning. So church, would you pray for our dear friend Loretta Wheeler, who fell this week and broke her hip. Lord, we ask you to be with Loretta as she recovers. Lord, keep her free from pain and give her perseverance. Lord, be with her even now. Pray for our good friend Bob Corey at the same hospital down in Southwest Integris. As he recovers from total knee replacement surgery. Just ask you to be with Bob and Fran as they move towards health and healing and recovery. Be with both of them down there. Church, would you please pray for both James and Carolyn Shea, who are both in the hospital at St. Anthony's for different reasons. James, they just don't know what's going on. Or Carolyn for difficulty breathing. It's this married couple, they rest in that hospital in different rooms. Church, would you pray for them? other situations in the life of our church and in your life that you know someone who needs a specific healing touch from God. In these moments, would you pray for that person that God puts in your mind? And again, that healing can be relationships. It can be emotional. It can be spiritual. If you know someone who needs a healing touch from God, would you pray for them now? for all of the students who have returned to school and all of the teachers that are all across this congregation. Some of them have been teaching for a few weeks. Some of them haven't quite started yet. Most of them by now have met students. So pray for those teachers that you know in your life. And also pray for the students, all of these kids from pre-K into postdoctoral work that start this transition into the new school year. say a prayer for our those who are part of our congregation who teach at Southern Nazarene University and as they have their new student institute service today and all the new college students they're starting many of whom we want to pray for pray for them pray for college students starting all over I know OU starts tomorrow the Olympics concludes tonight. It's hard for me to watch the Olympics and not pray for situations of strife and unrest and war across the world as I rooted on refugees and rooted on countries uh, like Zambia. So in any world area of which your heart is heavy for, would you pray for that now? we want to pray for tonight's block party that God your presence would even now go before us in our neighborhood as 
we continue, Lord, in the, this patch of ground that you've placed us to make a kingdom difference. There's so much more to pray about, but perhaps it can all be gathered up into one prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. So church, would you pray together with me? And we'll use debts and debtors during that portion of this prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.